I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Joanne Littman is the author of Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. She interviewed CEOs, MBA stars, designers, authors, neuroscientists, and created a reinvention roadmap. Joanne has gone through a reinvention herself from being a professional journalist, editor-in-chief of USA Today. She's won Pulitzer Prizes. She rose up through the ranks at the Wall Street Journal, and now she is a speaker and best-selling author of multiple books. Her latest book is next, and she outlines four different steps to help all people, but you know, for our purposes, women, to reinvent themselves. And they include search, struggle, stop, and solution. And I think this book is a really valuable place for people to start when they're feeling the itch to reinvent themselves. And that there's something that they should be doing that they're not, or they're really deeply unhappy and they're trying to figure out why and what they should be doing or want to be doing. Or they're forced into a situation because of, you know, who knows, you're you're moved, you got laid off, you got divorced and need to go back to work. This is a way in which you can rethink your career trajectory and your life and what's holding you back and where you want to go. So I hope that you take something out of this fantastically well-researched book and that it's really useful to you along your own personal journey. Your book next, The Power of Reinvention in Work and Life is really could be like the tagline of the second shift because the second shift's entire purpose is to help women reinvent themselves, reimagine themselves, to reimagine the workforce, to reimagine what career paths look like over time and how much changes between when you start your career, the actual life that you live and where it winds up, which in some ways is like a fun journey, but also a really hard and can be incredibly painful way in which you have to navigate life, coming to terms with your own dreams and fears and overcoming them so that you can live and prosper and have this like abundant, successful life and career path. So thank you for writing this book. And I I think of it like I was reading somewhere, it's like a reinvention roadmap. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's actually what next is. It's a deeply reported guide to navigating change and how we live, how we work, how we lead, And I actually, the reason I wrote it is for this moment in time, because everything you're talking about is particularly relevant right now in this post-pandemic world where people are searching for more meaning, they're looking for more purpose, they're sort of asking, what's next? How do I get to that new normal? And there was no guidebook to show us the way. And so that's why I wrote next. And in fact, what I did is it's based on, I did hundreds of interviews with people who had all kinds of transitions lots of career transitions, but also other kinds, life-changing aha moments or coming back from failure or coming back from a terrible trauma. So I synthesized all that reporting into sort of what is the best way as we all go forward now, what is the best way for us to get 
to what's next. And I did come up with a reinvention roadmap. It's four steps. And I found that even though the people I spoke to had many, many different kinds of transitions and the experts I spoke to from psychologists to management gurus, to neuroscientists to study your brain, they all use different language. But at the end of the day, when I mapped it out, which I did on paper, I mapped out what they were telling me, their different steps. And it came down to these four steps, what I call the reinvention roadmap. And the four steps, which we can walk through are search, struggle, stop, and solution. Oh, I definitely want to walk through them. But first I want to know, like, this obviously took a lot of research. This is a great idea for a book. How did you start writing it? What was your aha moment that you were like, this is what I have to do next? Yeah, it literally was an aha moment. Not everything is. This one was. So this was, it started three years ago, exactly three years ago. It was actually early on in the pandemic. So if you recall, we all got sent home knowledge workers got sent home on March 13th of 2020. And at the time, I remember we were all thinking like, this will be like a couple of weeks and then it's over. By mid-April, we sort of realized, oh my gosh, we're in this for the long haul. We don't know when it's going to end, but we do know when it does end, the world is going to be different and we're going to have to figure out how to get there. And I was thinking at first, just, you know, very much about my own family, my own life. I'd been out on the road with my previous book. That's what she said, talking about gender issues and working with companies. And suddenly I'm at home and everybody in my family's at home. But then I woke up in the middle of the night in April when I realized, oh my gosh, this is not like personal to us. This is the world. We don't know where we're going and there is no guide to get us there. And I literally said, there's no guidebook. I need to write one. And I got up early that morning and uh, wrote a note to my publisher to say that we need this. And they were like, yes, we do. (laughs) And I started reporting it that very day. So it's been three plus years now of speaking with these hundreds of people who have gone through these transformations. And I'm getting more and more every day now that Next is out. I hear from people every single day sharing their stories. It's been remarkable. And what's your story? You were a journalist. And you I am ha- still a journalist. So, well, yes, in a different transition, in a different version of that, a different way of being a journalist. Obviously, of course, you don't stop doing your profession when you are still in writing and you're still you're on TV all over the place and you're researching. You make a good point in that people say to me, wow, you've had a reinvention. So my career path, you know, I spent 22 years at the Wall Street Journal starting as a as a reporter and ending as the second in command as a deputy managing editor, and then went over to Condé Nast to start and found and be the editor-in-chief of a business magazine, Condé Nast Portfolio. I subsequently was the editor-in-chief of USA Today and the USA Today Network, which is 110 newspapers and 3,000 plus journalists, as well as chief content officer of the parent company, Gannett. And in between, I've written, this is my third book. Um, The second one was about closing the gender gap at work. And what's interesting is people will look, and I'm also a contributor on CNBC, so I'm on television and I do a lot of other kinds of media and speaking, but people will look at my career path and say, wow, what a reinvention you've had. And to me, I am the same person. I'm a journalist. That is who I am. That's what I am. It's just, I would call it a fuller expression of who I am. And what's really cool is when I talk to people, the people I interviewed who had what seemed like the most extreme pivots, they would say the same thing. So for example, there's a guy who 
spent 30 years as a Harvard-trained economist at J.P. Morgan in London and Manhattan. Today, he's a cattle farmer in the Hudson Valley. And I said to him, wow, what a, what an extreme reinvention. And he kind of looked at me and said, you know, not really. Like, I use everything from my life as an economist in this new world. Like, I have to figure out how do I run a business and what is my budget and what is the supply chain and everything else. All of that training comes into play. And I found the same thing. Another woman I talked to, Catherine Finney, started as an epidemiologist. She gained accidental fame when she started blogging about her cheap fashion finds at Target <laughs> and Kohl's. And she became known as the budget fashionista. And she used to be on TV all the time. And I tracked her down recently. And now she is an investor and an advisor to Black-owned technology-founded startups. And I'm like, okay, that wow. I can't yeah. even imagine how you get from one to the other. And she said to me, she said, I am inclined to pivot, but every step of the way informed the next. It was organic. There is a through line. And I think that's very important for people who are listening, for if you are thinking of pivoting, the people who are successful at this are not people who like drop one identity and pick up another. It's not the dilettante. So I'm going to dip here and here and here and here. There is a through line. There is a continuum for these people. And even though to the outside world, it looks disconnected, there's actually a connective through line. As someone said to me, it's, it's your why. Your why doesn't change. I was going to say the intention if you're doing something with intentionality and it's not because it's reactive, it's because it feels right. like in your gut or you know that this is the right move or you you know that you have to leave something even if you don't know where you're going, then there's like something propelling you forward. You have to do that thing, even if it's really hard to do it or make that move. And then you can look back and see how those moves really became connected and became a path forward. And it wasn't just like a whim. Well, also you make a really good point about gut. So I have a whole chapter in Next on gut feeling. And there is a reason that it feels right. And that is because it almost always, not every time, but very, very frequently is right. But there is a, there's actually a, a reason for why it is right. And that has to do with it actually is a form of pattern recognition. So scientists who have studied this have found that when you are so knowledgeable in a particular area, you sense patterns and your gut very often, before you consciously realize it, your body actually realizes it. The analogy would be actually, if you look at like expert chess players who can play 25 people at once and they just go boom, 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 boom. They walk around and they can do it with, with seemingly no thought. That is because they have had so many chess moves in their head over the course of their chess careers that they almost can do it by instinct. It feels like instinct, feels like they're not thinking about it, but it's their gut. It's their body telling them what to do. I love it. So let's walk through the four steps first. And then I wanted to tell you, I've basically put myself through your entire process when I was reading it. I was like, this is how I came up with and wound up exactly where I am. What you did is basically just like dissect it down, figure out the ways that like how you got there and then build a model back up to lead other people along that path. So I thank you. And I, I want to see your four steps are search, struggle, stop, solution. Yes. And let's start with search. 
Sure. So the search, that first step is when you start collecting information and, and experiences. What's fascinating about this first step is very often you're collecting information, but you don't consciously realize it's going to take you to some transition. You don't know it's going to go take you somewhere else. And for some people, you know, it's a hobby, a side hustle, a random interest. But that search is, you know, that is sort of what the search means, by the way, is by the time you're consciously aware that you want to transition, usually you're further along than you think. It's like gathering data. You're gathering yeah. the data along the way. And it can also be like a, a what, I, what I don't want. What I don't yes. want is this. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I've always loved bees. I'm going to be a beekeeper. It could be like, mm, I really don't ever want to do this. So this doesn't seem to be what I thought it was. Exactly. Exactly. But it also, you don't have to know the end point, right? And I think this is really, really important because those of us, I mean, I grew up in business journalism and anyone who's grown up in business or went to business school, right? It's drilled into you that you're supposed to have the goal and then work backwards and know every single step of the way to get to that goal. It's like Think and Grow Rich, that book, like a lot of these business books. And I found that for so many of the people I interviewed, that was not the case. Now, by the way, that is fantastic if you know exactly what you want to do. You better map it out. If you know you want to be a surgeon, you damn well better map that out. <laughs> but for so many of the people I spoke to, this first step was very, very much unintentional. It was just things that were of interest to them, that they were collecting ideas, information, data. But then you get to the second step. So the second step, the struggle, the struggle is where you start to disconnect from your previous identity, but you've not quite figured out the future one. We don't like to talk about the struggle and because it's kind of miserable. And as a result, we often don't talk about the struggle, which is very damaging, right? We tell these stories. It's, you know, it's Cinderella. It's Spider-Man well, and Superman. And what's Idol. that? I can't remember the name of the... Um person who created the the idea that you only remember the beginning and the end of something. You don't remember the middle. Those are the things that yeah. stick out in people's minds. So it negates in some way all of the things. It's great if you want to focus on that, but it also negates all of the, the process. Well, the problem with not recognizing it when we tell these stories, and it's true in business stories too, you know, it's like Mark Zuckerberg, college kid to tech billionaire, boom. And the problem is that the struggle part is really important. We all go through it, but because we don't talk about it, when we do go through it, we feel like we are the only ones. We feel like it's very lonely. We feel like there's something wrong with us, that everybody else is on a glide path to success and only we are struggling. And so it makes it extra painful because of that. But people should know that all of my research shows that even though this is the period of time when you do feel stuck, you feel like you're spinning your wheels, but you're actually moving forward. That's really important to know because it, it'll help get you through this very uncomfortable period. And that period often doesn't stop until you reach the third step, which is the stop. So the stop, that was an interesting one to me. I did not anticipate this in my research, but pretty much everyone I spoke to, they had a moment where something happened that pulled them out of their routine. And that was the catalyst that allowed all of these, you know, information, the struggle, the data, all of it to coalesce into this idea of, aha, now I know where I'm going. So the stop, it could be something that you choose. It could be, I quit my job. But it can also be something that is imposed on you. Like I got laid off from my job 
or an illness or a divorce. And for some people, it was just something as simple as a kid going off to college, right? Or it's having kids. Having or kids. having a kid. Moving. Maturity. Right, yeah. exactly. It's something, and, and exactly, moving, moving to a different location. Something like that, that pulls you out of your routine, allows you to get the kind of perspective that you don't have because as we all know, like every day is a marathon and you're just go, 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 go. You don't have a chance to let it all sit with you and to actually think intentionally about what am I doing and do I want to do this and do I want to do something else? And so you need that stop that pulls you away. It's funny because the stop and the struggle could be almost intertwined in that sense because some people maybe don't have the struggle until they have the stop. Like, yes. unless you are actually called out of your life. And then I hear from, so like so many of the women that I'll talk to through the second shift who come to us and, you know, looking for jobs or or in this like weird transition times. And they're like, okay, so I just moved mm-hmm. to the suburbs. So I just got laid off. And now I first have to like put these things into place. And then you start to like face the struggle what I think you're saying is like, turn this time into a positive. Turn the struggle. Like it doesn't have to be that. The stop can be so, can be so positive because you get to have the stop. Right. And you embrace the struggle. But, But your very excellent point you just made though about sometimes the stop come first. First of all, sometimes you go forward and backward, but you can do these steps in different order. I have a chapter, for example, on post-traumatic growth, which is really interesting. We all know about post-traumatic stress after a traumatic event, but post-traumatic growth is a relatively new field where psychologists have found that people will, what they call bounce forward. In other words, not bounce back to where they were because that's impossible, but bounce forward and feel that they've grown, that they have new relationships, that they're open to new ideas. But the key with post-traumatic growth is the first step there is the stop. It's the trauma. That is what sets you off on the search for what is next. When does the CV of failures happen? Because this is fascinating to me as just a concept and just uh, like a, a practice. I love the CV of failure. So the CV of failure, sometimes when you're struggling, sometimes you actually should stop. Like some, sometimes like wherever you're trying to reinvent to, you should know, like cut your losses. I have a chapter on failure because I wanted to know when should you cut your losses? And the CV of failure was one of the great strategies. So what it is, is you create an alternate resume. Only here you put down everything that ever went wrong, right? Every (laughs) job you didn't get, every supervisor who yelled at you and told you you weren't you know, weren't doing it right. Every, every time you were ghosted when you were applying for something and uh, what it does. And, and I will tell you the, the person who told me about this, the first person I believe who ever did this was a scientist who has this gold plated resume, Ivy league, everything, Oxford, Cambridge. She's amazing. And I looked at her resume and then she said, let me walk you through that again. And she walked me through the 15 fellowships she didn't get, the supervisor who told her that she was going to flame out the, you know, this and that and the other thing. And what she said is when she did her CV of failure, she actually published it in, I think it was in Nature magazine. It was in a science magazine. And she said the response, it went viral because so many scientists were like, oh my God, thank God. Because we all fail. We just don't talk about the failures. So there are two really important reasons why you have that CV of failure. The first, as she said, is 
you know, first of all, it tells you everything you've tried, which like you should feel good about that. But secondly, and perhaps more important, it's another set of data. It is data that helps you understand yourself better. And in her case, for example, she was trained as a biologist and she realized that her failures, her CV of failure was filled with things where she was in a laboratory setting where she had to manipulate fish, you know, with her hands. And she said it made her realize not just that this was a a weak point for her. It made her realize what her strong suit was, which is computational biology. So she actually pivoted in terms of her specialty and became hugely successful. So that, that CV of failure actually was really useful data. I think I love that because you can also see, I mean, I'm like such a like relentless pathological optimist. So I flip it, like instead of seeing the negative of the CV of failure, you could also be like, well, okay, when did it work out? Exactly. What When it worked out, what was I doing? Why did it work out? Okay, what when this didn't work for me and I kept going and going and going and then I tried this thing, oh, that's how it worked. Well, here yes. was how I got to an aha moment and kind of like, again, like reverse engineer back your success, your failures and all the things that brought those to either success or failure. Now that's exactly right. It shows you not just your weaknesses, but it points to your strengths. And I think that's the key. Yeah. Okay. And then the last step, final step. Final step, the solution, which is whatever you are pivoting to. And that is generally the culmination of all the previous three steps. And you need to go through those steps to figure out where you are going to. Now, in your experience and in your research, do you feel like I feel like a lot of people, when they get to the solution, even when they get there, it's a scary place to be because then you have to act on it. Yes. It's, you have to do it. <laughs> you, you know, you come up against, you know, your ego and your fear and all the limiting beliefs and thoughts you've ever had. And you're like, you can talk yourself out of it. What is the thing that made the people who wound up doing it and being successful? Was there a commonality in what got them to like actually implement the solution into their life? Yeah. You know, there was a commonality in the people I spoke to, and that was an openness to pivoting to something unexpected, right? To pivoting somewhere they hadn't anticipated. And this was, this has actually been shown in research as well. There's a professor who did a study of people who had life-changing aha moments. A lot of them, actually, their life change was they needed to pivot to a new job, but some was to get out of a toxic relationship, you know, those kinds of significant moves, or to even to break a bad habit. He was trying to figure out what did they have in common that led them to change their behavior. And he found that the one thing they all had in common was an openness to accepting and listening to their aha moments, to not just writing it off, Right. So the idea is that they were open to the idea that I could pivot from being an economist to a farmer. Right. There's a mindset. And you can consciously sort of conjure that mindset, which is helpful. You can also conjure the mindset that the struggle that you're going through is helpful. There's actually a bunch of research that's been done, including on Second City, which had improv students, and they told them that struggling was an important part of the process and they wanted to lean into the struggle and own that they took more risks and they were more successful, which is really interesting. Very different environment. UBS tried the same thing with bankers. So UBS had one set of bankers watch videos that showed that actually stressful situations 
are good for the brain and good for the body. And when they came back six weeks later, this group was more likely to look at, at the stressful part of their job as a positive. And they also, they had fewer health problems and higher satisfaction at work, which is fascinating. It's just sort of reframing how we're looking at the process. The power of suggestion. Yeah. Right. So now I have a question. You know, we deal with women. That is the, our primary audience. And the women come to us who are oftentimes in a place of career transition or are looking forward to doing something different. And, you know, for myriad different reasons, do you think that transitions or reinvention is particular or different for women than it is for men? Yes, it is. So in Next, I have a chapter I call The Necessity Entrepreneur. And that is about women as well as other marginalized groups. So it's people of color, LGBT community, and increasingly, by the way, baby boomers, because they're now reach the youngest of them are now reaching toward retirement age. They're turning 60. And so as a result, all of these groups face various degrees of marginalization. They get pushed off the ladder. They reach the glass ceiling, you know, or they're or they're marched off the glass cliff. They get a leadership job, but then it, you know, then they're blamed for whatever failures and they lose their job. And as a result, these groups often have no choice but to become very entrepreneurial and to reinvent their careers. And by the way, there's a researcher at Bowling Green State University who studies just female career paths and finds that pretty much all women will end up having to reinvent their careers at some point, and sometimes multiple times. Ooh, what's the name of this researcher? Uh, Deborah, Deborah O'Neill at Bowling Ooh. Green State University. Thank yeah. you. So, yeah. I'm going to so, look her up. You should, absolutely. Absolutely. Really interesting research she's done. But as a result, women tend to be actually more entrepreneurial than men. And the other actually very interesting thing is two two really interesting points. One is women, there's a lot in my book next about self-identity because it's so important when we're thinking about who we are and the transitions and where we're going. Women have a stronger self-identity than men do in that men tie their identity very closely to their job title. So if they lose the job title, they're like, who am I? Whereas women will tap into alternate identities. And I saw this, the, my, the magazine that I ran, Portfolio, it did fantastic award-winning coverage of the financial crisis, but it also got closed because of the financial crisis. It was a Condé Nast, which had to close a bunch of magazines. The day that it closed, I remember we just brought out all the liquor. For those who don't know, if you're in a newsroom, there's always liquor. So we brought out all the liquor and we're like commiserating over our little lukewarm cups of wine there. And the men were all like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I need a new job, like right this instant. And the women, even the women who were breadwinners, which was a lot of them, they were the main breadwinners in their families. The women were like, oh my God, this is an opportunity for me to spend time with my kids. Or, you know, my mom's been ill. I haven't been able to go fly to visit her. Now I'm going to go do that. Or I'm training to, to run the 5K. I get to have more exercise, <laughs> right? So it was fascinating to me that the women immediately tap into these alternate identities. And the other thing is when women do reinvent, and this is something Deborah O'Neill found, they, they very often will pursue mission-driven organizations, which I also found fascinating. But when you think about it, it's really true. I mean, a great example of that is Sally Krawcheck, who ran two investment banks. Her entire career was in finance, had nothing to do with gender. 
But when she lost her two jobs, she actually started Elevest, which is a financial firm for women, and Elevate, which is to teach financial literacy to women. Very, very much mission-driven. And I, you, you see that pattern with a lot of prominent women. Yeah, I totally understand that. It's like if you get into like what is authentically what you're looking for. But I want to just go back one sec. I bring everything back to Nora Ephron because she is just like, to me, has advice for all things in all areas of life. And it reminds me of a speech that she gave, what you were saying, how women reinvent themselves more freely and are more willing to take risks with their identity because at different points in time, you identify yourself in different ways. And the things that are the most, whether you're like a daughter or you're in college and then you're a worker, you're a mother, you have so many different identities and versions of yourself over time that they just are more fluid. And because of that, I think it allows women to be more risk-taking. But on the flip side, we also have so many different ways in which we self-sabotage ourselves and tell ourselves stories about what we can't do and what we don't want to do and it's too hard and just overriding that. That's why I think this book is so great because it's a way to override the things that might hinder you from having the optimism of, okay, well now I'm going to use this as a positive. I'm going to flip into a different version of myself and it's okay to do that. And it doesn't mean it's a failure in any way. It's really a, a great positive, really like congratulations on this book. I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy it was written and uh, I can't wait to, to spread the word to our audience and beyond because all of these things mean a lot and people come to us a lot and ask for advice and I love having places to send them. Take a read this book. Here's another way to think about it, depending on where you are in your life path. Somebody else has done the research and somebody else (laughs) is going to tell you what to do. And so you can live whatever possible version of yourself you feel is the one that you want to put forward first now. Exactly. And it's okay, right? It's okay. You can be different things at different points in time and it doesn't mean- That reinvention roadmap, people will go through it more than once in in their life. I mean, I've certainly can chart, you know, just off the top of my head, I can think of three or four times when I've been through this whole path myself. And frankly, now that I know how it all works out, it would have been a lot easier (laughs) to know it back then, but I'm glad I can share it with others for the future. Is there anything, just last question, is there anything you do when you feel the struggle or you feel like you're out of you're looking for an aha moment or you're trying to get into a zone where you can feel your gut more. What are some of the things that you do that help you? Because you've had a very intensely successful life and career and are a working mother and all those things. So how do you do it? So I'm going to do it better from now on. I'll tell you that (laughs) now that I know. Well, we always can do it better. Always. But, you know, one of the strategies that I talk about, I have in in Next, I have a dozen specific strategies to get you through all of the steps of the reinvention roadmap. And one of my favorites, which I definitely have used, that's incredibly effective, it's I call find your expert companion. So your expert companion is someone who knows you well, who can reflect back to you, what are your strengths and what are your talents? And also what are your weaknesses? So they're not someone who tells you what to do, but they can reflect back to you so that you better understand yourself. The reason this is so important is because 
we don't really have a great view of like objective view of ourselves. And very often we'll have innate strengths and talents that we either don't recognize or if we do recognize them, we sort of diminish them because we feel like, I've oh, come so easy. How, you know, how special can that be? But it's very unique to you. And so that person, it can be a coach. It could also be a friend, a colleague, a family member. I'll leave you with one great little story about my own expert companion is my husband. And there was a time, so I was at the Wall Street Journal for 22 years. I loved my job. I had zero intention of leaving. And then Condé Nast, Sly Newhouse, who is now no longer with us, but who owned Condé Nast, approached me and gave me this opportunity to come over there to create my own magazine from scratch in the family of Condé Nast, which is the New Yorker Vogue Vanity Fair. And I was like, wow, this is an amazing opportunity, but I love the job I have. And literally for two months, I was paralyzed, absolutely paralyzed. I didn't know what to do. And finally, one day I was talking to my husband, going through these pros and cons. And my husband said to me, he said, you may not see this, but when you talk about this mythical non-existent magazine, your entire physical affect changes. I see this light in your eyes that I haven't seen in ages. There's just something in, in your tone of voice, in your body language, that is completely different than when you talk about your current job. And so he didn't tell me what to do. It was all about what my decision, but what it did, it was that moment. I was like, oh my God, like my body, like clearly I know what I want to do. It was just, I was too afraid to make the call. And that moment, he was my expert companion reflecting back to me things that I couldn't see myself. And that led me to say, okay, I'm ready. And, and that's how I knew I was going to take the job. I love that. Yeah. Everyone needs a mirror, the person who can yeah. like shine it back and say, or just like I said before, gather all the data, listen, and just say, it sounds like this is what you're saying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Or it looks like this is what you want. So thank you for taking the time to be on the Second Shift podcast. I really appreciate the book is called Next, Joanne Lippman. And so nice to meet you. Great to meet you too. And thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women. 